Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of series 2 of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. Here, we're going to continue to explore the yield building and cost saving potential of plant growth promoters. Look, the need to expand your regenerative farming skills has really never been more urgent. The world's just completed a two-week talk fest, driving home the scale of the biggest challenge we've ever confronted. And even though the Glasgow commitment was pretty sadly diluted, it has become abundantly clear that there's finally a recognition that healthy soils just might offer a viable solution. So your profession as a food producer just got a whole lot more important. However, it's not just the urgency of countering climate change or even the recognition that globally we use more chemicals each year for less and less response. The big game changer now is the absurd increase in the price and availability of the MPK fertilisers that grow most of our crops. Now, what's happening here? Well, China, the largest exporter of DAP and MAP, has just suspended phosphate exports. And urea prices continue to rise and rise. Now, there are several things driving this. Increasing energy costs, predominantly gas. Plant shutdowns due to climate extremes in several parts of the world. Crazy freight increases, sometimes four and five times what they were a year ago. And a variety of other influencing factors. Now, farm chemicals and fuel are also spiralling upwards, and yet food prices are not rising to counter this explosion in running costs. So it's a pretty grim scenario. This can be seen as a bank-busting disaster, or it could be an opportunity, and I guess it's kind of your choice. And the fact that you're listening to this podcast suggests you might be scanning for that silver lining. So in December, my last podcast for the year will be entitled Chasing the Biggest Bang. And here I'll be focusing upon strategies to minimise inputs and maximise response. This month, I'm going to further expand your understanding of the potential of low-cost plant growth promoters' inputs that can help you maintain yields in a reduced input scenario. I've got some really exciting things to share here. Let's begin by highlighting the exciting potential of chitinase. I guess we need to start at the beginning by explaining what this substance is about. The first thing to know is that if a word ends with A's, then we're always referring to an enzyme. Think nitrogenase or lipase or cellulase, protease, urease and so on. So this then is an enzyme that digests chitin. Chitin in nature is both abundant and widespread. In fact, it's the most abundant, what's called it's a polysaccharide called a biopolymer. It's the most abundant biopolymer on Earth. It's second only to cellulose. So chitin's found in many organisms, including the shells, exoskeletons, and gut linings of arthropods, which, of course, include crustaceans and insects. And those creatures comprise 75% of all life forms on the planet. Chitin's also found in the cell walls of many fungi, and these creatures are actually the greatest percentage of biomass in the soil food web. There's many more bacteria, but fungi way more. Interestingly, chitin also makes up the structural frameworks of nematode eggs. Now, nematocytes are, are the least sustainable, most destructive, and most costly of chemical inputs. 
and they kill more farm workers globally than any other input. So if there's other ways to manage this particular pest, it's certainly worth considering. Currently, we're losing about 35% of all global crop production to losses associated with insects and pathogens. And then we lose another 15% to post-harvest losses based on early senescence, which is poor shelf life, and of course, various rot issues. Chitinase can help address both of those, and we'll talk about that shortly. Chitin is abundant in seafood waste, but it's not particularly water-soluble. It's not in a plant-available form. So typically, chitin is treated with heat and alkalinity, and that creates something called chitosan. And chitosan's become a kind of sought-after input because there are so many studies now confirming the substantial potential for biocontrol for plant growth promotion, for immunolicitation, improved nitrogen cycling, and phosphate solubilization associated with supplementing soils with chitin. So if you can access prawn waste or, or anything similar, there's also a great potential for biological activation of chitosan. You don't have to use the industrial heat and alkalinity you can actually just use lactic acid. And of course, we're talking about the potential of brewing this waste product with beneficial anaerobes like BAM or EM. Brew for a few weeks and effectively create a do-it-yourself plant growth promoter and protectant. Just to give you an idea of how that might work, basically take 300 kilograms of prawn waste, 50 litres of BAM, 50 litres of molasses and perhaps maybe 600 litres of water, in a sealed 1,000-litre shuttle. Now, you should drill a hole in the top of the lid of that 1,000-litre tank and fit it with a one-way CO2 escape valve, which is just simply a one-metre length of garden hose from the airspace in the top of the tank out into a two-litre bottle of water attached to the outer metal frame. So that's a one-way valve. The CO2 can escape and bubble in the water, but oxygen can't get in. Then you should be checking pH on a regular basis. And when that pH hits 3.5, the brew is usually complete. There is another DIY strategy to grow your own chitin. And that involves setting up something called a black soldier fly farm. These creatures can create a really good microbe and mineral pack fertilizer from food waste. And it only takes five weeks. The larvae contain 60% protein and they are a really, really special food source for chickens or maybe aquaculture for fish. But their poo and their residues are called frass. And frass is a power-packed biological fertiliser. It's got substantial levels of plant-available chitin and that chitin comes from the shedding of the outer skins of the larvae as they develop. So if you've got access to animal manure, to food waste including coffee grinds, or perhaps fruit and vegetable crop residues, and I'm thinking immediately about the number of apples we tossed out that were damaged by birds last year. This concept's really worth exploring. One tonne of waste produces 200 kilograms of larvae and 200 kilograms of chitin-rich, nutrient-dense compost or frass, and that takes just five weeks. Now, you can check out how to make your own self-harvesting black soldier fly farm online because it's a bit hard to describe it here. Basically, there's a good small unit. You can watch it being made on Gardening Australia on YouTube, and you can very easily upscale that model. 
Suffice to say, it'll be my next project on the farms and I'll keep you posted about my personal progress. So chitin boosts a form of plant immunity called systemic acquired resistance, or SAR. And remember that all immune elicitors boost yield and crop quality, while of course reducing the need for chemical intervention. So a researcher called Button and some of his colleagues found that chitin amendments decreased the severity of fusarium in a pea field. The fusarium population decreased as the population of actinobacteria exploded because actinobacteria can produce chitinase. Now, another researcher called Kretau and some of his colleagues investigated the long-term effect of chitin amendments in agricultural soil and that involved crops like potatoes, wheat crops and lily. Chitin basically suppressed the growth of verticillium in this case, and also a destructive nematode called Pratolinchus. You might have heard of it. Their abundance, these two pathogens, their abundance decreased 10 times compared to the unamended soil. And their suppression could be related to the tenfold increase, in fact, was related to the tenfold increase in the microbial density in the soil. And of course, particularly the density of the bacteria that produce chitinase. In fact, one of the main reasons that chitin delivers such a big punch in terms of soil and plant health relates to the fact that it stimulates larger populations of soil organisms that produce chitinase, the enzyme that dissolves chitin. So herein lies a major opportunity because we can specifically brew up these organisms on farm or we can produce vermicompost and liquid vermicast, which contains both of these key organisms and their chitinase exudates. So let's explore both. Let's look at harnessing chitinolytic microbes. So the fungicides and insecticides used to produce food crops, of course, have got many environmental and health consequences, and there's an urgent need to look at more sustainable alternatives. So aside from this unwanted contamination, these chemicals can become self-perpetuating because they compromise plant immunity. And chemical resistance is also increasingly commonplace. So the more you use, the more you'll need. Microbial chitinases weaken and degrade the cell walls of many pests and pathogens, and that makes them antibacterial, antifungal, insecticidal and nematicidal. They're amongst the most promising alternatives on a pathway to a more sustainable future. Chitinolytic bacteria and actinomycetes feed on the carbon and nitrogen found in chitin. And if that chitin is sourced from pathogenic fungi, insect pests or nematode eggs, then that's a pretty good outcome. Interestingly and thankfully, there appears to be a kind of selectivity involved where the cell breakdown is often specific to the bad guys. There's now several studies that have revealed that there's no damage to mycorrhizal fungi, for example, in the presence of chitinase. The effect of chitinases on insects is particularly exciting because insecticides can seriously impact soil biology. In one 1990 study by Schuster and Schroeder, this chemical damage was actually shown to be irreversible. Chitinases have also been demonstrated to affect insect growth. So both feeding rate and body weight of larvae decrease if they're in contact with chitinases, and this, of course, can ultimately lead to death. These symptoms are attributed to the weakening of a chitin-based membrane 
that lines the gut of the larvae. I'm thinking about my brood microbes that seem to be controlling the larvae of codling moth on my apple farm at the moment, and of course this explains why it's happening. We're actually using a combination of Bt and some chitinase-producing bacteria to control codling moth larvae. So, so far, so good. We'll see what happens. Actually, Bacillus thuringiensis, or Bt, is quite interesting. It provides kind of a double whammy. It produces a larvae-killing toxin that most of us are familiar with relative to caterpillars and so forth, but it's also a chitinolytic bacteria. And there's some research showing that there's actually good synergy with Bt and other chitin-producing bacteria. They, they work well hand-in-hand, hand, and that's what we're using on the farm. So things like Bacillus lacaniformis and Bacillus pumilus are some of the more active chitinase-producing bacteria, but things like Bacillus subtilis and Bacillus amyloliquefaciens, that's the big hot one that people talk about at the moment, they're also very active in terms of chitinase production. And these organisms can be quite easily brewed up. In fact, my Microforce product involves those and a couple of others, and that's what we mix with Bt to control the larvae of both codling moth and light brown apple moth. So these spore-forming species are called firmicutes. That's a cute little name, but that's the name for those spore formers. There's an interesting finding with these organisms. Holsteiner and some of his friends isolated Bacillus thuringiensis from tomato roots that could protect against verticillium. However, it wasn't just the chitinase that was doing the job. All of the Bt isolates that he looked at possessed genes that encoded the antifungal cytorophore called Bacillus bacillobactam. And one isolate had a gene encoding the antibiotic zwittermycin A. So this is seen as evidence that these chitinolytic bacteria possess multiple antifungal mechanisms. Bacillus pumilus, bacillus lichenoformis, bacillus amyloliquefaciens also fix nitrogen, they solubilize phosphorus and they stimulate plant growth, so that's a nice package. So over half of the known chitinase producers are actually actinobacteria. And this is one of the main reasons for the fungicidal and insecticidal benefits of vermicompost and, of course, it's liquid extract. Vermicast is teeming with actinobacteria, so I'll share some really valuable tips shortly about creating your own vermicast fertilisers on-farm. Let's have a look at post-harvest protection for a moment. As I mentioned earlier, 15% of our crops are lost to poor post-harvest shelf life. The use of post-harvest fungicides is common, but their efficacy often fails due to resistance problems. And of course, they provide yet another source of chemical contamination for hapless consumers. Chitinase-producing bacteria have got really promising potential for post-harvest protection. Several of the bacillus strains have been used as probiotics for humans and for animals, so that's obviously preferable to the toxins. Now, the best researched of these bacillus organisms relative to extending shelf life and post-harvest protection is the famous Bacillus subtilist. In one study, the cell walls of spoilage disease organisms were completely broken down within 38 hours following post-harvest treatment with Bacillus subtilist. Okay, it's time for a little ad. Microforce, our blend of freeze-dried Bacillus organisms, involves 
Bacillus amylolocrefaciens, Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus lichenoformis, Bacillus pumilus, and Bacillus megatarium, and all five species are capable of chitinase production, along with nitrogen fixation, phosphate solubilization, and plant growth stimulation. They're also capable of immunolicitation, and they can be brewed up for as little as $10 per hectare. So that's our advertisement for this session. Let's look at chitin and biodiversity from liquid vermicast next. Okay, it's time to get some oxygen flowing with the humour segment for this month. I hope you're enjoying my, my warped sense of humour. So we're going to start with a focus upon materialism and perhaps addiction to consumerism. So a successful businessman is barking orders on his mobile phone while parked beside the highway in his Porsche. A truck flies past and the overhanging cargo rips the door off his car. A policeman arrives at the scene minutes later. The businessman is ranting. You've got to hunt down that truck driver right now. Look what he's done to my brand new silver Porsche. Oh my goodness, responds the policeman. You are so obsessed with your material possessions, you've not even noticed that your left arm was completely torn from your body by the truck. The businessman looks down in horror at the gushing, gaping hole where his arm used to be. And he screamed, oh my God, where's my Rolex? (laughs) That's an obsession. Now, the next day I'm going to kind of explore the concept of ugly. It's a common theme. Uh, You know, how ugly is your mama? There's a whole stream of jokes on that line. So let's go. I'm going to have a bit of fun. I had a rough childhood. I was a very, very ugly baby. In fact... I was premature, and they put a dark tint on my incubator. At birth, my mum asked the midwife, will he live? And the midwife said, only if you take your foot off his neck. When I was born, the doctor met my dad in the waiting room and said, I'm terribly sorry, we tried our very, very best, but unfortunately, he pulled through. My mum had terrible problems with morning sickness, but it was a bit different. She vomited every day after I was born. In fact, I was so ugly, my mother breastfed me with a straw. But that was heaven compared to when I finally moved on to solids because then she fed me with a slingshot. (laughs) I I was what they call a double bagger child. My mum always wore a bag over her head just in case my bag fell off. (laughs) The good side was that I was really well-travelled as a child. My mum took me everywhere just so she wouldn't have to ever kiss me goodbye. It was tough. I remember my very first step. That was when Dad tripped me up. I kind of knew they didn't like me as a child when my bath time toys were a toaster and a hairdryer. Once I was kidnapped, and the kidnapper sent my parents one of my fingers in an envelope, and my parents said, sorry, we need more proof than that. (laughs) eventually the kidnappers sent a ransom note. They said they wanted $100,000 and my parents need never see me again. And then they buckled. The kidnappers had a change of heart and they paid my parents to take me back. Actually, that's how we bought our first house. And then, of course, it was time to go to school. The common comment I received when I went to school was, is that your nose or are you eating a banana? It was a tough journey and I needed counselling. At one point, 
I asked the doctor, why is it that I vomit every time I see my reflection in a mirror? And the doctor said, I'm not quite sure, but at least we know one thing. We know that you've got perfect eyesight. Okay, Okay, I can continue for much longer, but that's enough of that genre. Let's have one more slice of a different humour before we get back to work. So a man walks into a rooftop bar in the city and takes a seat next to another guy. What are you drinking there? He asks the guy trying to make conversation. Magic beer, says the bloke. Oh, yeah, what's so magical about it? Then he shows him. He swigs some beer. He walks to the ledge, dives off the roof, flies round the building, and then finally returns to a seat with a triumphant smile. Oh, my goodness, that's absolutely amazing, the man said. I've got to try some of that. So the man grabs the beer, downs it, leaps off the roof, and plummets 15 stories, splat to his death on the ground below. The bartender shakes his head and says, you know what, you're a real wanker when you're drunk, Superman. <laughs> okay, that's our humour for this month. So it's time for the human health segment for this month, and as promised, we'll continue the exploration of how we can reclaim libido and the robust health that comes with a daily dose of desire. Now, as you probably realised last month, the parameters of sexual health are really closely related to all of the guidelines for a longer, happier, healthier life. So in that context, this segment is relevant to every one of us. The wonderful Marvin Gaye was perhaps more profound than he thought when crooning the benefits of sexual healing. He was talking, of course, about release and stress reduction, but the benefits extend way beyond that simple satisfaction. Perhaps you'll understand as we move our way through and discuss some of these issues And it all starts with the brain. We've all heard the cliché about sex beginning in the brain, and it's a phenomenon often ascribed to women more commonly than men. In fact, the brilliant Robin Williams once made the comment, God gave men a penis and a brain, but not enough blood to power both of them. Perhaps there is little multitasking capacity for men in that context. It certainly helps illuminate the concept of being driven by your dick, and perhaps it helps explain the kind of brainless, poor choices so often made by so many of us, particularly when alcohol steps into the equation. But let's not go there. Let's get back on track by discussing the neurotransmitter that's most directly linked to libido for both men and women. And perhaps then you'll understand this intimate relationship between health, longevity, and libido. So acetylcholine is that neurotransmitter most directly linked to desire. This substance is involved in the build-up to orgasm, the urethral and vaginal contractions that occur during orgasm, and the kind of subjective analysis of orgasm intensity and orgasm duration. I guess we'd better explain neurotransmitters before talking about their importance. A neurotransmitter is a messenger created by nerve cells, which are called neurons, to communicate with other neurons. There are seven key neurotransmitters, and they include, you've probably heard of some of these substances, glutamate, GABA, dopamine, adrenaline, serotonin, oxytocin, the cuddle hormone as they call it, and of course, acetylcholine. The presence of optimum amounts and the balance between these seven substances virtually defines the human experience. Our capacity for compassion, for 
understanding, well-being, empathy, mental health and happiness, all of them are determined by the balance of neurotransmitters. Depression, the black dog, for example, is often characterised by a lack of serotonin. Autism has been strongly linked to GABA imbalances and it's also related to another neurotransmitter called glutamate, which is a precursor to GABA. The interplay between and the comparative levels of those two neurotransmitters is profoundly linked to the deep impairment in information processing and social behaviour dysfunction that really is a characteristic of autism. The imbalance between this pair is also linked to schizophrenia and epilepsy. Parkinson's disease is all about the balance between dopamine and acetylcholine. And we now understand that farm chemicals are intimately related to that imbalance. Substances like paraquat, for example, are now of particular concern relative to Parkinson's. But we're talking about acetylcholine here and it's integral to much more than desire. This was actually the first neurotransmitter to be identified in the brain and that was over a century ago, back in 1914. It's since been found to impact the entire nervous system and it has multiple roles within the brain. Now, the most important of these relates to improved memory and enhanced learning capacity. Alzheimer's disease, the plague condition that now impacts one in four of us over 65, is almost always characterised by very, very low levels of acetylcholine. See, the brain actually requires sufficient acetylcholine to form memories. Memories are, of course, the thread that creates the tapestry of our lives. It's tragic to lose that capacity for recall. My dad died from Alzheimer's and it was really heartbreaking. In fact, part of my personal journey for meaningful change in agriculture relates to kind of a burning desire to provide a viable alternative to the farm chemicals that have been so strongly linked to both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. In the case of acetylcholine, it's all about trying to avoid something called anticholinergic influences. This term refers to inputs that negatively impact acetylcholine. The farm chemicals with the biggest anticholinergic punch and associated memory impact are the organophosphates. And they really are something of a nightmare. They include popular players like malathione, parathione, diazinon, fenthion, and the dreaded chlorpyrifos. I'm hoping that many of you are now starting to understand that these chemicals treat symptoms, but if we can get back to root causes, there's a bit of an opportunity to exclude some of these chemicals from our programs. Now, we all know friends and family with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. An Iowa study, a recent study, uh, published this year actually, involved 20,000 farmers, and it revealed farmers had a 46% higher chance of developing dementia compared to the next closest profession. There are also a variety of drugs that qualify as anticholinergics, and they shut down acetylcholine just the same way as farm chemicals do. These widely used pharmaceuticals include several things, including antihistamines, antidepressants, asthma inhalers, and one of the world's most popular drugs, ranitidine. Now, ranitidine is the active component of the indigestion remedies Zantac and Tagamate. And Zantac and Tagamate were amongst the largest selling chemicals in history for over a decade. 
actually researching the health component of this podcast each month has sponsored some quite profound personal changes on my behalf. During my years of travel, for example, and the time zone confusion that came with that, I I became dependent upon an across-the-counter antihistamine-based sleep remedy called doxyalamine succinate, or rest of it is the brand name. I've often continued to rely upon the sleep inducer. I suffer from insomnia, and I argue that the restorative power of sleep surely outweighs any of the negatives associated with the drug. Well, after doing some research for this presentation, I've had a change of heart. There might be some long sleepless nights coming up as I try and manage my insomnia without the drug, but this really has been my wake-up call. My memories and capacity to continue learning are way too precious to jeopardise. So let's talk about food for thought. Perhaps now you're thinking, okay, but I don't just want to avoid the things that shut down my acetylcholine. I want to embrace things, inputs that increase production of the substance that's so important for brain and sexual health. So let's look at how our diets might help. Let's look at food for thought, as I mentioned. Choline is the nutrient from which acetylcholine is made. So it's a pretty productive practice to increase your choline intake as a kind of brain protective strategy. This becomes particularly important if you're trying to counter the farm chemicals and anticholinergic drugs that I just mentioned. The best food sources, what are they? Well, there's four of them. Eggs, the wonderful eggs, liver, sardines and nuts. Now, I absolutely love my free-range eggs from the farm, but it's a really good idea to try and avoid chook feed, or chicken feed, you might call it in the US, that's loaded with sorghum. Sorghum's almost always dried down directly before harvest with glyphosate, and glyphosate's not a good additive to put on your egg yolk, particularly if you're feeding them to children. I also eat nuts every day, but there's a really good strategy I want to share that can dramatically improve the nutritional value of the nuts you're consuming. You might have seen the term activated nuts in the health food shop and wondered, well, here's the story. Nuts contain high levels of a natural acid called phytic acid. Now, this substance binds with zinc, magnesium, and several other minerals and renders them insoluble. It creates, for example, a zinc phytate, which you excrete. Worse than that, well, that's the point. That insoluble compound that's found is excreted, so you're actually depleting, in the case of zinc and magnesium, two of the most important single minerals that most of us are lacking. Nuts also have a second thing. They contain really high levels of enzyme inhibitors. They're a seed, of course, and they're trying to avoid inappropriate germination. Now, we do have a limited bank account of these important enzymes, digestive enzymes specifically, so any form of inhibition is not a good idea. So what's activation about? Well, that involves a simple technique to remove phytic acid and enzyme inhibitors from an otherwise wonderful food, and here's how you do it. First, Stir a teaspoon of salt into a cup of warm water and then add that brine to a one-litre bowl. Now, you might as well use a good mineralised salt like my mountain salt called Nutrisalt from NTS Health. You might as well get some minerals in the process. Now, next, add a cup of nuts into that bowl and then leave them to soak overnight. Twelve hours later, pour out the salty water and dry the nuts 
on a bit of paper toweling before placing them in a food dehydrator for 15 hours at 50 degrees. Now you can buy these dehydrators for $50 second hand. Everyone really should have one. Then, 15 hours later, you've created this crunchy, delicious, nutrient-packed treat to boost choline for the benefit of both your brain and your liver. Sardines are a really nice snack on sourdough toast and they're a great source of choline along with calcium and magnesium from the bones and some silica. And they also feature a rich load of all-important omega-3 brain protectors. And they're a rare source of something called coenzyme Q10 for heart and brain health. I'm not so partial to liver, but I probably should try to force it down because it's pretty much a superfood. And, you know, that's a term that's overused, but liver kind of qualifies. It's the highest food source of B vitamins, the highest source of iron, zinc and copper. And, of course, it contains really high levels of choline. The only trick here is that you need to make sure it's a liver from grass-fed animals rather than grain-fed, particularly if we're talking about beef. Now, let's look at some of the key supplements that boost production of acetylcholine. Vitamin B5 is a big one. Vitamin B5 is to acetylcholine what boron is to calcium. And if you like your glass of wine or three with a meal, then you probably need to top up on B5 because alcohol really depletes this nutrient. The bioavailable form of B5 is called pantothene. And this is the building block for something called coenzyme A, which is a key player in the synthesis of acetylcholine. You can source pantothene online on sites like iHerb or Piping Rock and several others. The therapeutic dose rate, just so you know, is 1,000 milligrams per day. Citicoline, also known as CDP choline, is probably the most bioavailable form of supplementary choline. There's really good research demonstrating an associated increase in acetylcholine in the brain when supplementing with citicoline, C-I-T-I-C-O-L-I-N-E. Another precursor to acetylcholine is called acetyl-L-carnitine, something else you can buy at the health food shop or online. It's been shown to be neuroprotective while also boosting cognitive performance. It can also activate acetylcholine receptors, so it's kind of a double hit, and so it's commonly used to treat cognitive decline. The three key minerals for brain health are zinc, magnesium and manganese. Now, as I've previously suggested, zinc is equally important for brain health and your immune system, and the best time to supplement with zinc is directly before bed. Magnesium's also a, a major immune supporter while accelerating synthesis of acetylcholine. It's such a common shortage of magnesium deficiency, and it's probably best addressed with transdermal delivery. That's delivery through the skin. That can involve something like an Epsom salts bath, or a spray-on magnesium oil like my MagSorb product from NTS Health. The best source of manganese is probably the activated nuts because they are a very high source of manganese, the nuts I've already described. Curcumin from turmeric also modulates acetylcholine receptors in the brain, and this is one of the many reasons that this remarkable supplement has been shown to be neuroprotective. Piperine, the active component of black pepper, dramatically enhances curcumin uptake and utilisation. 
Again, I'm going to advertise my Life product created from turmeric that I grew myself on the farms. Nutrient-dense turmeric from Nutrition Farms features the correct percentage of organic black pepper and it is quite a special supplement. Omega-3 fatty acids are also potent brain foods and best sourced in plant form via chia seed, that's the highest source of omega-3 fats, or through cod liver oil. I talked about that last month. Always to be taken with lemon juice to improve the flavour and reduce potential reflux. That's cod liver oil, a tablespoon a day. Let's look at some of the herbs for sex health. Now, the two main herbal supplements for management of acetylcholine are ginkgo biloba and ginseng. Now, ginkgo biloba increases blood flow and oxygen into oxygen-hungry brain tissue, and that improves memory, mood, and mental energy. Research demonstrates it can increase acetylcholine levels in the prefrontal cortex region, which is linked to enhanced cognition. And other studies have shown associated increases in what's called the hippocampus region that's responsible for memory. These, and and actually many studies on ginkgo biloba, can be checked out if you use the search engine at pubmed.gov. So PubMed is something I use all the time. It's a remarkable research resource and it's very, very simple to check things out online. Ginkgo biloba is a really beautiful fern-like tree. Well, it's a large tree that has fern-like foliage that you can plant on your farm or in your garden. It lives up to 3,000 years, so it certainly can symbolise your belief in a viable future. It has to be a prime component, or it has been really a prime component of traditional Chinese medicine for centuries. That beautiful foliage and those leaves can be sun-dried or dehydrated to make either a tea or a tincture. Now, two teaspoons of dried leaves steeped in a large mug of hot water for 10 minutes is considered to be a medicinal dose of that do-it-yourself tea. And you can also make a tincture by putting 150 grams of dried leaves into 500 mils of vodka in a jar, store in a dark place for a month, shake the jar as often as you remember, and then take two or three teaspoons a day to boost your brain health. Now, both ginkgo and ginseng can inhibit an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase, and that breaks down this key neurotransmitter And both of them also increase synthesis of that critical messenger. So what's the best form of ginseng? Well, Panax ginseng, Korean ginseng is probably the most popular, is the most active form of this herb. And you can successfully supplement that at 1,000 milligrams per day. Okay, so now you're starting to understand that sexual health is inextricably intertwined with your total health. The key sexual messenger, acetylcholine, is linked to brain and liver health, and the minerals that determine its production are critical for optimum immunity. Everything is interrelated. So we've covered the importance of zinc and magnesium for sexual health, but the third lead to the stool, this nutrition stool, is selenium. And this trace mineral is missing in most Australian soils, almost not measurable, and it's missing in most humans. 50% of a man's selenium is found in the testes and and seminal ducts. So men lose selenium in their semen. As I've discussed in earlier podcasts, the highest natural source of selenium is the Brazil nut. In fact, this humble nut has 40 times more selenium than its closest competitor. 
And it also contains luxury levels of zinc and magnesium, so it's a three-way winner. The most powerful synergist for selenium, called a cofactor, is vitamin E. Vitamin E is often called the sex vitamin. And the Brazil nut has really healthy percentages of vitamin E. And again, as we talked earlier, it's probably best consumed in that activated form that I described. Now, in my opinion, the most potent aphrodisiac nutrient is an amino acid called L-arginine. I'm a big fan of this nutrient because I've personally experienced the benefits. L-arginine has often been called the poor man's Viagra. It's the primary building block of nitric oxide. And that's the substance that relaxes blood vessels and improves blood delivery to both the penis and the clitoris. Now, the drugs Viagra and Cialis both deactivate an enzyme that's linked to nitric oxide performance, and that encourages blood to rush into the penis. The key difference between these two drugs relates to the time they remain present and active in your blood. Now, Cialis lasts six times longer than Viagra. Both drugs can sometimes have a rare but quite serious side effect that includes a kind of unmanageable permanent erection, and that condition usually requires hospital treatment, and then it can generate subsequent erectile dysfunction, so it's not a good story, and I'm guessing you'd probably prefer the short-term Viagra option if that happened to be the unfortunate outcome. Now, in part one of this presentation, I mentioned that despite the measurable arousal of the clitoris, from both of those two drugs that I mentioned, Viagra and Cialis, that doesn't often translate to increased desire in a woman. But that doesn't appear to be the case with the substance I like called L-arginine. L-arginine is well-researched in premenopausal and postmenopausal women who are suffering from a condition called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD. Now, I won't list this research, but again, you can easily Google it if it's of interest. In one major New York study, the woman literally suffering from the death of desire had this welcome turnaround following supplementation with L-arginine. This amino acid is most effective in both women and men when it's combined with ginkgo biloba. And according to some studies, the therapeutic dose rate is about 5,000 milligrams or 5 grams of L-arginine per day with 200 milligrams of ginkgo biloba. Now, I'm sure that response varies from person to person, as it always does, but I've tried just 1,000 milligrams of L-arginine recently with 200 milligrams of ginkgo, and this was, I must admit I was pleasantly surprised at the response. It's a hard gig, this one. <laughs> Excuse the pun. I mean, a man's got to walk the talk if he's sharing this kind of information. Even better news about the combination of arginine and ginkgo is that they increase the release of human growth hormone. They lower blood pressure. They increase immunity. They improve memory. They reduce migraines. They improve wound healing and they protect the heart. That's the real reason, of course, that I tried them. Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Let's talk about natural aphrodisiacs. It's not hard to think that cultural favourites like rhino horn are probably more related to the phallic shape of that protrusion rather than anything scientific. The decimation of thousands of rhinos for the sake of a cultural myth is both sad and, and quite simply infuriating. The simple fact is that there are several proven sex stimulants that could potentially counter the misguided demand that's driving 
a wonderful creature like the rhino into extinction. Let's look at, at the best of these natural aphrodisiacs. Let's begin by looking at the appropriately named passion flower and a couple of additives that can significantly boost its passion-pushing potential. Passion flower contains a bioflavonoid called chrysin, which is a, a really powerful aromatase inhibitor. Now let me quickly explain the problem associated with aromatase. This enzyme is created by adipose tissue, which is gut fat, and it serves to convert your testosterone into the estrogen that feeds both prostate and breast cancer. That estrogen is why overweight men develop breasts and eventually become impotent due to a lack of testosterone. Overweight women also suffer a loss of libido due to that loss of testosterone. And in a 1993 University of Minnesota study, chrysin outperformed all other aromatase inhibitors and was equal to quite a heavy-duty drug that's used for this purpose. Chrysin can also reduce anxiety and stress, which are notorious libido dampeners, and in one Argentinian rat study, it proved equal to Valium without the side effects of motor impairment and sedation. Chrysin is also a powerful antioxidant, and it has an anti-inflammatory effect by inhibiting COX-2 enzymes. Just like curcumin and turmeric, the bioactivity of chrysin can be significantly increased with the addition of piperine from black pepper. In fact, bodybuilders regularly use this pair to boost free testosterone and to boost muscle integrity. Now, this free testosterone story is a key to retaining libido as we age. It's now recognised that age-related libido loss may be directly related to a 40% increase in the capacity of a protein called sex hormone-binding globulin, or SHBG, the capacity of this protein to handcuff free testosterone in men over 40. European research has found that three components of nettle root at the weed, stinging nettle, three components of nettle root can bind to SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, in place of testosterone, and that leaves testosterone free to prevent heart attack, to boost sex drive, to build muscle, and to contribute to bone density. Studies by the Life Extension Foundation have found that there's a real synergy between passion flower, pepper, black pepper, and nettle root, and that they are very safe and highly effective. In fact, you could easily turn your hated weed into a special medicine, and here's how you might do it. First, put on some gloves before you harvest your nettle, dig the plant up, cut the roots off, wash them, add some passion fruit flowers from the garden, harvest about 250 grams of each and dry them in that dehydrator I said we all should have, and dry them for 24 hours at 60 degrees. Now, They'll each weigh about 50 grams at this point. Take that 100 grams of dried herbs and place it in a jar with 10 grams of ground black pepper. Top up that jar with vodka, store it in a dark place for a month, and you just produced your own anti-inflammatory testosterone builder to improve relaxation, pretty important in a pandemic, and to enhance your sex life. Now, the best research of the other herbal aphrodisiacs include four things. Tomcat Alley, Horny Goatsweed, quite an appropriate name, Macca, not from McDonald's, and Tribulus terrestris. Now, they've all got really good scientific support, these herbs, and their mode of action is pretty much fully understood. So Tonkat Alley, what is it? It's a Malaysian herb 
that's been shown to boost erections, to boost testosterone, increase sperm count, and increase sex drive. One study, pretty impressive, reported a 93% increase in testosterone following two months of supplementation. Now, this herb has also been shown to reduce stress and to improve mood. There are multiple studies covering this herb on PubMed, including an anti-aging study confirming increased muscular strength. Remember, loss of muscle density is part of aging, so it increased muscular strength, and there were impressive increases in free testosterone and reductions, quite important reductions, in the stress hormone cortisol. So that's Tongkat Alley, T-O-N-G-K-A-T-A-L-I. Horny goat sweet, as I said, appropriately named, it's been used in Asia for sexual dysfunction for well over 2,000 years. And the main active ingredient here is it's called Icarian. And Icarian's been shown to boost nitric acid production. So that's the secret of horny goat's weed. Maca is a herb from the Andes that has been used again for, for generations to boost libido, to lift energy levels and to build stamina. It's an occlusion you'll find in most libido formulas because it appears to have a synergistic effect with other herbs. There are multiple studies confirming an endocrine balancing effect and a lot of these involve both premenopausal and postmenopausal women. So MAC is a good one for men and women. Tribulus terrestris contains really high levels of something called steroidal saponins, which again boost free testosterone. But they also lower blood pressure and they lower cholesterol. So that's a good one. All of those you can buy readily online. Just Google them. Let's look at some food that might boost libido. Protein is really important here because amino acids are required for hormone production and for many other things, including immune support. So your immunity, of course, is protein-based. So 120 grams of proteins per day is needed, but you also need to be sure that you're digesting that protein. Now, many of us post-50 have digestive issues. One of the issues relates to that thing called an enzyme bank account and the fact that we very often run out of protease and so one of the keys here is actually a link to longevity which is consuming a little bit of lacto-fermented food with your main meals some sauerkraut or some kimchi or whatever or you can take what are called proteolytic enzymes which of course are dominated by protease take them with the meal and ensure that we're successfully converting our protein into amino acids almond milk has got really high levels of zinc and manganese, and they're both libido precursors. They're also both involved in the production of something called superoxide disputase. There is a zinc form and a manganese form, and that's another component of sexual potency. Almond milk is also really alkalizing, and many of us need to alkalize. The other issue, of course, is that dairy has been found to be Really bad news for prostate cancer. Over 17 published papers linking dairy consumption to advancing prostate cancer. So a switch to almond milk in your coffee or whatever or on your cereal might well provide dual protective benefits. Now, dark chocolate contains something called phenylethylamine, which is a substance that floods the brain during orgasm. Now, it also produces or boosts production of the feel-good hormone serotonin. So I knew that was a reason that I loved dark chocolate. One study 
reported testosterone increases in women following daily consumption of a little dark chocolate, quite marked testosterone productions. Dark chocolate's got so many other things going for it. It's got an amazing ORAC score. ORAC is the measurement of antioxidants, the scientific measurement, the oxygen radical absorbency capacity. It's a measure of antioxidants. And, you know, blueberries are six, 700. Dark chocolate is 13,500. But that powerhouse antioxidant load becomes zero with the addition of as little as a thimble full of milk. All dark chocolate, check the labels, all dark chocolate must be completely free of milk or it just becomes a lolly rather than a medicine. Someone needs to explain that to the major Australian chocolate makers because they don't seem to have gotten on the Kiwis and the Europeans produce real dark chocolate, but the Australians keep dishing up the worthless milk-contaminated product. Now, second, or perhaps the most important, the reduction of sugar consumption is an absolute essential for sexual health and for pretty much every other aspect of your health. Sugar is our number one killer, claiming both our lives and our desire. High blood sugar and insulin resistance affect every aspect of arousal and desire. If you've got a sweet tooth, book into a dentist and have it removed. No, seriously, you can easily do things like switching to stevia and xylitol to satisfy those cravings while also countering the damage potential of what they call a white poison. Finally, we're going to talk about exercise for libido. Several studies have revealed an increase in female libido directly associated with weight loss. Now, the ideal libido-enhancing exercise regime would perhaps involve the following four components. Number one, aerobic exercise. That involves swimming, biking or walking for 40 minutes five times a week. So that's 200 minutes a week and that burns about 2,000 calories and provides a whole range of other benefits, including one study that showed it was more powerful, that daily walk was more powerful than an antidepressant. Number two is a simple five-step stretching routine called the five Tibetan rites. It only need to take 10 minutes, but it's really been shown to enhance hormonal balance. So it's stretching, but it's serving a dual purpose. You can Google it. It's called the five Tibetan rites. Very simple. Number three is something called interval training, often called peak eight. And that involves 20 minutes, three times a week. And this is the best of all the research strategies to sponsor the release of human growth hormone. Now, human growth hormone, of course, is the youth substance that is also a renowned libido enhancer. And finally, resistance training for 25 minutes, three times a week. That's 25 minutes, three times a week. The interval training is just three lots of 20 minutes, so that's an hour. Resistance training, 25 minutes, three times a week. And that prompts, again, prompts the release of human growth hormone. Now, that practice simply involves putting some kind of resistance against your muscles. It's not weight training as such. However, while we're on the subject, weight training is also a really good proven tool for increased testosterone production in both men and women. So that kind of brings to an end the health presentation for this month. I hope there's been something of value. I hope perhaps it's brought a spark back to your eyes or maybe it's just increased your likelihood of living a longer, happier, healthier life. Now, I really love farm field days. I reckon there's always an opportunity to learn something new 
doesn't matter how much you've learned in your life and experience, you're on someone's farm, they've worked for years on a handful of crops in those specific conditions, and there's always something new to learn. It's fascinating. I never tire of it. Recently, during one of my two-day events in central Queensland, I saw this wonderful, simple strategy that I've got pretty passionate about. I reckon everyone should be looking at it. I'm surprised I didn't think of it myself before, but I went straight back to the farm the following weekend and replicated this do-it-yourself fertiliser production system. I mean, the fertiliser that was made on farm was put through a large centre pivot and really, really achieved some really good results at a ridiculously low cost. So I'll share that story in much more detail later, but first I'm going to whet your appetite and talk about the potential of vermicast and liquid vermicast. So vermicompost is quite different from conventional compost. For a start, the decomposition process is four times faster. Now that's a big story in its own right in a world hungry for planet-saving soil sequestration of carbon. Earthworms do it four times quicker. We literally build humans more rapidly if we can bring back the earthworms. But here we're talking about compost. Conventional composting involves a thermophilic phase that involves the heat and quite different microbes are involved. And then there's kind of a change of guard and the much longer mesophilic maturation phase takes over. Now, when the worms are involved in composting, it's just one intense mesophilic process. And that seems to create, just like the Johnson Sioux, which of course involves worms as well, that creates a much greater microbial diversity. All composting involves the creation of humic and fulvic acid. People think this is some kind of off-farm input, but all composting, the better you compost, the more humic and fulvic acid you create. But vermicomposting has about 60% more humates than conventional compost. And that's just the start of the difference. You might recall from earlier podcasts about the Queensland research that I've talked about with the DPI at the Gatton Field days where they compared the performance of six different composts. There was pig manure, chicken manure, cow manure, no manure, human manure, and vermicompost as well. And vermicompost outperformed the second best compost, which was made from cow manure, 20-fold. One tonne of vermicompost was equivalent to 20 tonnes of composted cow manure. So now you're about to understand the dynamics of that pretty profound difference. Research demonstrates that vermicomposting increases the ash content and accelerates the rate of mineralisation. It's actually a more comprehensive compost. Lots of compost you buy are actually only half done, but vermicompost is the complete product. And that greatly increases the plant availability of the mineral content. This increased rate of mineralisation in ash means that you've got more plant-available minerals, basically. We also see that phosphate levels are always higher in vermicompost and that's probably due to the wealth of diverse organisms that are incubated in the earthworm gut that include several that produce phosphatase, which is an enzyme that solubilizes phosphate. Vermicompost also contains high levels of exchangeable calcium, magnesium and potassium, the three key cations. And interestingly, it reduces the salinity of raw material. Often composts have got quite a high salt component, but the vermicomposting process neutralizes that salt to quite a degree. But it's the microbial diversity that is really the big prize in vermicompost. 
Vermicompost contains vast microbial diversity, but there are very high percentages of plant growth promoting bacteria and actinomycetes. Actinomycetes are chitinase producers, and they often deliver their cell-dissolving enzyme more efficiently because they've got these kind of short, vigorous hyphae that can kind of aid the penetration of pathogen cell walls to break them down more rapidly. Hence, we see research by Nakasone and colleagues demonstrating that aqueous extracts of vermicompost, so this is a vermicompost extract, inhibited mycelial growth of Botrytis, Sclerotinia, Cordyceum rolsi, Rhizoctonia, and Fusarium. That's a big package of pretty destructive organisms. That, that liquid vermicompost inhibited all of those diseases. And other researchers have showed that liquid extracts can effectively control powdery mildew on barley and peas. Bacillus-based chitinase producers are strongly represented in vermicompost. So there's lots of bacillus-based chitin producers and there's lots of actinomycetes. And they're found, of course, in the liquid extracts as well. However, it's not just the chitinase that's creating protection. Vermicast is packed with other enzymes and lots of plant hormones that trigger immune resistance. Now, Hytink and Grabus from a 1997 paper suggested that this immune-enhancing effect was coupled with enhanced microbial competition, which of course is happening, antibiosis, the creation of antibiotics to kill off pathogens, and hyperparasitism, where you've got organisms that eat disease organisms. And of course, those together, along with that immune-enhancing effect, generate the very marked pathogen suppression. In one 2004 study by Edwards and colleagues, they used gas chromatography and other techniques to analyse liquid vermicompost, and they revealed the presence of really significant amounts of indoleacetic acid, or IAA, that's an auxin, gibberellins and cytokinins. So auxins, gibberellins and cytokinins in large amounts in a liquid vermicast. Another study by Aaron Conn et al. showed that the combination of these water-soluble hormones with the humic acid found in the vermicast makes them extremely stable and very persistent in the soil. Hmm, that sounds like a good argument for always combining kelp and humic acid together to enhance hormone stability to create that stable persistence in the soil. Aside from this synergistic aspect of hormones and humates, the presence of humic and fulvic acid in the vermicast and the liquid extracts has got other benefits. It increases germination, growth, flowering, fruiting in a whole wide range of crops. There's actually an incredibly comprehensive paper that features I think 317 references and covers hundreds of studies relative to vermicast and its vast potential. It's, it's published online at Springer Plus. It's written by Indian researchers Jayakuma Pathma and Natarajan Sakthival, hard names to pronounce, and that paper is called The Microbial Diversity of Vermicompost Bacteria. It's really interesting. There are so many studies to show how wonderful this stuff is. The paper also covers many studies relative to insecticidal potential of vermicompost. There are several modes of action here, including, of course, the impact of chitinase, the impact of enhanced immunity, and several papers relate to the presence of high levels of phenolic compounds, which have been shown to act as feeding deterrents, particularly when liquid vermicomposts are used at higher rates. Now, you're making them for next to nothing. You can use them at higher rates. It's exciting stuff. 
Okay, I think I've whet your appetite enough to ensure that perhaps you'll act upon what I'm about to share. Now, I've used worm bins made from a thousand litre shuttles on my farms for years. The worm juice is kind of captured in a reservoir that you create at the bottom and then of course it's released via the tap that's also handily positioned at the bottom. At the Rockhampton Field Day, my host Dale shared a much better strategy and here's how it works. First, place a length of weed mat on the ground where the worm farm's to be established. Now this is to prevent hungry tree roots from foraging for your precious vermicompost and they will. A 10 centimetre layer of wood chip is then spread over the weed mat as kind of a base. And then you begin making your layer cake in 15 centimetre layers. You alternate grassy hay, so we've got big bales of grassy hay, and cow manure and loosen hay, wetting down each layer before adding the next. If you can picture it, you've got your wood chip on the base, and then you might add your cow manure, and then you might add your hay, and then you might add your loosened hay. But on each layer, each 15 centimetre layer, you can sprinkle any kind of value-added things like crusher dust or humates or soft rock phosphate. If you want to value-add and look after the team, we also, and the one that we just made on the farm, we added BAM to each layer as an oculum. You build your windrow about 1.5 metres high and a metre wide and top it off with quite a thick layer of hay. The top layer is really essential because it's kind of intended to shut out the sunlight and earthworms are kind of like vampires, they hate sunlight. So you've got a thick layer of hay on the top. So Dale had a row about 20 metres long, but you can start shorter and just add on as you go. It's important that you leave the new windrow for at least two weeks to go through that heating phase, the thermophilic stage, because If you introduce the worms too quickly, you're going to kill them with the heat. But after it's cooled off, you add your one kilogram of composting worms into one end. You can buy them from Bunnings or source them from anyone who grows worms. And then they'll work their way through the pile. Now here's the exciting bit. I've always utilised leachate from the bottom of my bins, but I've never actually checked the microbial counts. I always thought this is pretty good stuff and used it. But after looking at Dale's system, I decided I was going to look a little deeper. He'd sourced a 100 micron mesh bag from a New South Wales supplier, and he collects a bucket of vermicompost from his worm-packed windrow and puts that into the bag that's then sort of dunked in a 200-litre drum half filled with water. He then embeds a hose with a good water pressure into that tea bag and hoses a good dose of the microbes, the humates, the chitinase, the enzymes, the hormones, and the plant growth stimulants out of that vermicompost. And after a few minutes, he returns the thoroughly washed vermicast back into the windrow to get re-inoculated. It's a pretty cool concept. This is basically a compost extract rather than a brewed tea or a leachade. And he does this with a couple of bucket loads, and then he adds that inoculated 200 litres into a 1,000 litre shuttle that's then fertigated over his forage crop with the centre pivot. Last season, he did that three times and he produced a really remarkable crop with no other inputs. So, as I mentioned, on the strength of this experience, I decided to compare the microbial counts from my normal leachate versus a compost extract produced in that fashion. If you own a microbiometer, that's a pretty simple test using the guidelines for extracts instead of 
the guidelines for soil. So in that instance, you're trying to score a reading higher than 30. That's considered to be good. I was really disappointed to discover that my leachate I've been using for years measured just 20. However, when I took the vermicast from which that leachate had dripped and more forcefully extracted the goodies, that reading increased sixfold. It increased to 120, which is beyond excellent. Here we're just measuring microbial biomass, but it's kind of a no-brainer that levels of all diverse beneficial components of vermicast will be seriously higher when you remove them in this fashion. Realistically, the leachate is just a small component of this goodness that is accidentally dripped into your reservoir. So I don't know why I didn't think this through previously. So my partner Claudia and I recently completed our first windrow at the apple farm. That was 17 days ago. And this weekend, I'm heading off today, we're going to add that one kilogram of composting worms at one end. So our row is about four metres long and about a metre and a half, but it's shrinking metre and a half high, it'll end up about a metre high. And we'll build on to one end when the worms have done their thing. So we've allowed to double up and maybe keep on building the length of that row as they move their way through. So this is something that any of you can do, and it should prove a super productive component of your nutrition farming enterprise. It's really one of the best things I've seen for a long time. At Dale's Field Day, we were peeling back the thick hay layer on the top and plunging our hand into what was a solid mass of worms. It was a thing of beauty. And that top hay layer was absolutely laced with billions of visible fungi, including that sort of greenish-white trigoderma colour. If you were to add some of that fungal mass to the vermicompost that you're going to forcefully extract you can't not have a pretty powerful biofertiliser at a ridiculously low investment. So, okay, that brings me to the end of this episode of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. I trust there's been plenty of value to help you move forward on your nutrition farming journey. Please feel free to share this information with anyone who you think might benefit. Look, we're facing so many challenges at present, and so I'm just hoping that in some small way I might be helping to relieve some of the pressure and perhaps ignite a little more passion. Next month, in the final episode before Christmas, I'll be expanding on the concept of minimising inputs and maximising response. I'll also talk about a new substance, a relatively new substance, called wood vinegar and the massive potential of that substance. Until then, I wish you a happy, healthy, productive lead-up to the festive season. Thanks so much for listening.